Hi Chores, welcome to Digest with Chew Chews, a podcast exploring the influence of food on our soil, body and soul. From regenerative farming to table rituals, let us embark on an Epicurean journey and meet captivating guests who invite meaning and purpose from field to fork. My name is Lea Sednaoui, gourmand at heart, and your host. I believe that chewing or living well is choosing. Let's find out how, together. Get comfortable and happy listening. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Alix Georges. Alix is one of my closest friends. After attending one of the most prestigious universities in France, she embarked on a career in business. As time passed, Alix found a new meaning to her life and discovered new interests that she had not seen coming. She decided to enroll in a course to become a hypnotherapist. Like everything else she does, she succeeds brilliantly and in just two years graduates and starts practicing right away. In today's episode, we'll tap into the mind and knowledge of how and why she went down this path. We will also talk about how hypnotherapy can help with food intolerances, today's eating disorders, and how the food we eat symbolizes who we are and what we struggle with. Hi, Alix. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alia. Hello, everyone. So to start things off, where did you grow up and what is your academic background? So my name is Alix Georges. I grew up in Paris, where I still live today. As you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a literary scholar by training. At the very beginning, I did a literary preparatory class in France, and then I branched off into more business-related studies. Since I went to school in Paris, after which I worked in the corporate world, where I mainly accompanied managers for about five or six years, And then, as you quite rightly said, I changed direction for personal reasons, for reasons of personal taste and personal interest. I myself started psychoanalysis at the age of 16, and then I reoriented myself to the world of therapy. It's been about six years now, and I've been practicing for a little over four years. So what is hypnosis and how does it work? So why was I interested in hypnosis? As I said, I have a training, rather analytical, since I myself have had psychoanalysis and I have also followed theoretical training courses on psychoanalysis and psychology, although I don't have a degree in psychology. And I was interested in hypnosis because I found that it was a complementary tool that solicited the body. I found that the body is not very much solicited when we do therapy and found that the state that is brought, the state of hypnosis, in fact, is a state of modified consciousness. It is an intermediate state between being awake and being asleep. And it is a state which is very close to the meditative state. And I found that it was more interesting to work on oneself in that state. Today, I use hypnosis. But I also use talk therapy a lot. For me, the two are very complementary. I don't like one more than the other and find that both work well together. Hypnosis, if you want me to talk about it a little bit more, is a very old technique. In fact, the first traces of it can be found for 4,000 years before Christ. It's a technique that has proved itself in a certain way, which has always worked. 
Then we talked a little less about it, although it was still used. For example, we can think of the fact that Adelpha Pitti in the time of the ancient Greeks probably used the form of hypnosis when she made her oracles. But it was more or less forgotten. It came back in the 19th century through the treatment of hysteria in hospitals. And then it was Milton Erickson, a great American psychiatrist in the 20th century, who totally renewed this practice therapeutically, notably through the techniques of suggestion. Hypnosis has been reconsidered during the course of the 20th century in different forms, and it is particularly well known for helping to modify certain behaviors, particularly addictions and compulsions. It is very well known, for example, for quitting smoking. This one in particular is called dissociative hypnosis, which was the great technique that Milton Erickson developed. The hypnosis that interested me the most was an even more modern type of hypnosis since it appeared in the 2000s. It is called associative hypnosis. Associative hypnosis is also called humanist hypnosis. It has a particular approach where one does not dissociate the person, but on the contrary, one associates it with itself. It is a state that is very close to meditation. We talk about an increased state of consciousness. In fact, the person becomes more aware of himself. So it's very, very close to psychology, in fact, and when you feel connected and aligned. In fact, MRI scans have demonstrated that associative hypnosis brought the patient into a state that's very close to meditation. The Brain waves are the same as the brain waves of Buddhist meditation. So in general, I find it's a very interesting type of hypnosis that allows patients to find their own meaning so that the patient, because it's, it's my vision of therapy, that the person elaborates his own answer, not in the hands of the therapist, and finds himself a soothing meaning to his request. Thank you for this. Really instructive. Um, I would like to talk about hypnotherapy in relation to food. As you know, we talk about chewing and choosing on here as a conscious act. Are hypnotherapy and food related topics? Yes, of course. Food and eating in general are very related subjects. I host a lot of people in the practice with issues that are associated with eating. Hypnosis will intervene to help regulate certain eating disorders better. But what is interesting is never to take the symptom as such, but to understand the origin of the symptom. That is to say that there can be two people who have the same eating disorder. However, the root of the problem won't be the same at all. So the symptom will not be treated in the same way. In other words, what I'm saying is that hypnosis is not a magic wand with ready-made protocols and that the whole approach of a good therapist is precisely to go in search of the wound that caused the symptom. The symptom always means something, which is linked to the intimate history of the person. So yes, we can treat eating disorders, but we must always understand what is the source of the person's eating trouble. So, a broad question. The act of eating is an intimate act. What does eating represent for you psychologically, culturally, and socially? Precisely what is very interesting in your subject, and even in the formulation of your brand, Chew Choose, is the fact that we chew and we choose at the same time. The dynamic shows that food and psychology intertwine in a very strong way. 
Why does, why does all this take place? First of all, food is a subject that affects us all. Universally, everyone is concerned with issues around food. This is quite normal because food is the most basic need for the survival of the humankind along with sleep. Eating and cooking have always been part of humanity for years. The only profession that was practiced for thousands of years was that of hunter-gatherer-fisherman, followed by the profession of the farmer. Today, we have a more developed society where food systems are more organized and industrialized, but for years, these activities were the most widespread in the world. Eating, as an act, has the goal to ensure our survival. When we eat, we consume energy that has been carried by the food. We need this energy to live. So, eating is an act that responds to vital and primary needs. It's a very, very important act to remember, which is perhaps the first act we perform when we leave our mother's womb after crying, we take, which takes root from the very first minutes of our lives with the mother that gives us the breast or the bottle, mother or father, carer. So our relationship to food will visibly be tainted by this experience throughout, of, throughout our lives. The singularity of mankind that differentiates us from the animal's realm is that it is an act that is vital, but which is also charged with meaning, culturally and socially speaking. That goes even beyond the psychological dimension, because in fact, it's not just a question of feeding oneself to live physically, as we just said, but it's also about eating to belong to a group, to identify oneself as an individual. If we take a look, every country has a culinary culture. This is about belonging to a group. Then, a little closer, we can find belonging to microgroups. For example, in France, in my family, we make gratin dauphinois like this. In mine, we make it like that. This is a sense of identity. We pass on family receipts. We're going to exchange them. We're going to be united around family meals with friends. Recipes. Ah, sorry. Parce qu'on comprend pas. Enfin, oui, oui. ça tombe pas. Je sais que j'ai un sorry. gros accent. Non, non, mais juste recipes. We pass on family recipes. We're going to exchange them. We're going to be united around family meals with friends. All this is a good illustration of the fact that eating is also becoming very codified by society. For example, let me talk about babies. So when the babies come out of the womb, it will eat in an extremely random way, on demand. To explain precisely to which extent food and feeding are tied, when the child comes out of the womb and eats randomly, it's in an an anarchic manner. We will need to explain everything to him and her or her as he or she grows up and that will be part of his and her or her socialization. We will teach the child that in fact we only eat three or four meals a day at fixed times, for example. In fact, we don't play around with food. That's part of the code of conduct in our Western society. We will end the meal with something sweet and start with savory food. Otherwise, we would be falling into a form of antisocial anti behavior and being a little primitive. All this proves that to, that what, to what extent food is linked to society. Society will also guide the choice of pro, pro, products and produce. their produce and their preparation. 
This is something you know very well in your profession. The fact that there has been a great evolution, thanks to historical and societal evolution, impacts the way in which we prepare, the way in which we bring flavors together, and the time at which we eat. For instance, and not so long ago, we used to get up at night to eat. Today, our society no longer accepts this. Food is staged, and that goes to explain to which extent learning, eating, and sociability are closely linked and constitute a sort of cultural call to us as human beings to differentiate us from animals. So effectively, once we've acknowledged all that, once we understand to which extent food, psychology and society are linked, we can understand that the human being who is fundamentally a neurotic being, an anguished being by nature, will develop multiple symptoms around food. To continue with this idea, we have behind us almost a century of modernization of our lifestyles, of industrialization of food production, an Americanization, and overwhelming snacking habits. Our lives are split online and offline today. We have been affected by a pandemic, the post-pandemic. It is certain that we eat differently today. I just want to distinguish a, distinguish a diet based on our needs, small pleasures included, obviously, but also a more contemporary diet where we eat by temptation to let off some steam or spite, the release of our stresses from external influences, which connects a little with what you speak about today. We talk about shopping baskets at the grocery stores that appear as an extension of our bellies, we find ourselves in sorts of food automation, even in relation to our bodies. So from your experience as a hypnotherapist, how does our modern context impact our relationship to feeding ourselves? Yes, all that is very true. And re it reminds me of a study that was done by a French sociologist of nutrition called Claude Fischer, who explains that the fact of incorporating food is as much a physical act since we absorb nutrients as it is a social and imaginary act in the sense that what we eat, and that's exactly what you mean when you talk about the market basket, is an extension of our identity in the sense that what we eat represents us. Incorporating certain foods will be telling of our identity and it also speaks about our connection to it. What is very interesting, in fact, it is the, this dance that you also explained to which extent food can also serve as a connective stake. If we go back to psychology and the human psyche, I'll share a very telling example. Food will be what the child will use as the first field of confrontation, contestation, to affirm his or her identity when the child at a moment automatically refuses the meal that will be offered by the mother or the parental figure. This scene questions authority and authority figures. We know that refusing to share, to share means refusing the other. Today, when we land in a new country, you will taste the local food. This marks as a first step towards an encounter with someone, a culture, etc. So, you see, this is very... This is where we can acknowledge that our early relationship to food becomes a defining territory later. In today's society, there are multiple symptoms that have always existed. 
but there is perhaps one symptom that we all know and which is very interesting. It's a stress eating, also associated with comfort food. Stress eating is a phenomenon, phenomenon that concerns one in, in free people. There is nothing pathological about it. As I was saying earlier, we all have an issue with food. It's quite normal. The human being is a being who carries anxieties within him. And he will simply use them in the different areas of his life, life, like of his life, like food or sleep. The symptom expresses the fact that food is fundamentally linked to our emotion. Let's go back to the baby. When a baby is born, it knows perfectly well how to regulate itself. It knows perfectly well if it is angry or not angry, and if, it, and if not, it will stop feeding by itself. This is a feeling that we as adults will lose. We know little about the sensation of satiety. Why is that? Because we have associated food with something that is linked to our emotions. A typical example, why is there an overflow of fat and calories at Christmas? We might assume it's pleasure to make ourselves feel good. But we might also think that it is to counter the anxiety of being reunited, reunited with our family. We can't be sure, but what we do know is that we're, what's at work here is a classical mechanism where we are trying to restore a balance, whether towards pleasure or soothing an anxiety by feeling better in the act of eating. The German psychoanalyst and doctor Hildebruck demonstrated that what we all eat more in crisis situations to alleviate emotions that are painful to us. For example, a few days before exams, students will often either eat more or eat less, even though they have no usual psychological problems. This is called emotional eating, which is very often regulated by fat and sugar. Why is this? Because in fact, when there is a there is a biological phenomenon. When we are stressed, we will secrete cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and cortisol will tend to be modified by the ingestion of caloric foods. So there is also a whole neurochemical aspect, in fact, where there are electrochemical modifications, which will be positioned at the level of our brain with a release of serotonin that will give us the impression of appeasement when we eat fat or sugar. We live in a contemporary context that encourages excess in our food consumption as well as in sports, work, performance in general. Today, many people find themselves victims of digestive disorders that did not exist 50 years ago. We talk about the imbalance of the intestinal flora and leaky gut. According to you, Alex, do these symptoms of our contemporary lifestyles give us clues to new societal pathologies or social diseases? For me, this question is linked to the fact that we have a less and less natural relationship with food. Very often, I get to consult with patients who have these types of symptoms. As I said, there is no standard protocol. It does not exist. The simple fact of taking helps of understanding what is hidden in their history with food and whether it will make the symptom disappear or alleviate them, alleviate them. Because in fact, the trend today that I see in the, 
is this hyper-performance society that you describe is that people want to eat healthily at all costs. And it has a name. It's a pathology, in fact, to want to eat healthy at all costs. It's called orthorexia. I'm not saying that you have to eat unhealthily, of course. I'm just saying that it's normal not to check all these calories every two minutes, not to put, to put a QR code on each food product that you're going to consume. And that is also a form of pathology. We actually are in a form of hyper-control. Very often when the patient understands that this desire to control everything hides something else, the initial symptoms such as irritable, irritable bowel syndrome or unexplained allergies will disappear. That's something I've seen very regularly. So we're talking about a new contemporary group of people, really, as you were saying. It is fascinating, though. Yes, it actually shows how the body and mind are fundamentally linked. And that's my big thesis about therapy, that there's no point in taking a, in taking a symptom for what it is. You have to understand what it's about. That's what's important. We all have a blueprint, really. We are all, are un we are all unique in our... We all have a blueprint, really, and are all unique in our own way. Exactly. And today we can really say that one of the faults of our contemporary society is to require ready-made answers. We want quick answers. For example, some things that I hear very often. What is anorexia? But what is exactly is bulimia? But really, it depends on each person. We can give broad answers, of course. Obviously, there are major psychological principles at work. But at the end of the day, it depends on each person's history. So control, stress eating and beyond. When food becomes a source of comfort, sometimes of dependence, sometimes of addiction, what does food compensate when we develop symptoms, eating disorders like bulimia, orthorexia and other? So here you really enter the re realm of pathology because what we were talking about earlier, these issues are not pathological that concern one, of, one in three people has ties to our neurotransmitters. It's completely normal. But when it becomes pathological, we are going to turn our interest to compulsiveness in eating disorders. It seems to me that this is what you are referring to when you talk about bulimia. But We also need to know, what we also need to know is that anorexia is also compulsive. It's a compulsion that goes the other way. So let's talk about bulimia and hyperphagia. Just to specify to our listeners, these are two similar pathologies. In bulimia, the person will try to regurgitate, whereas with hyperphagia, there will be a very important ingestion of food that will be kept in. In bulimia, The person will reject the food and therefore reject life. What happens is that there is an impulse that will be introduced. I need to, to stress on the fact that the impulse to eat is much stronger than the craving. This happens in three phases. So the first one, the crisis arises. There is going to be an extremely strong impulse in the person which is really stronger than him. This is what is very important to understand. It's like a drug addict. It's like a heroin addict who has bags of drugs in his cupboard. The second phase is the crisis phase where the person, person will, will ingest many, many foods in an extremely impressive way. 
And the first phase, which is going to be a phase of dissent, is a phase of disgust and guilt, which is an extremely toxic phase for the person. So, in fact, why does this, this impulse come into play? It's an impulse that is anchored in people who often suffer from trauma and developed psychological disorders. The crisis will occur when the subject is overwhelmed and unable to be resourceful towards his own issues. Paradoxically, paradoxically, this impulse will be interpreted as a protective behavior by the individual. He will think, in fact, that food or the fact of not eating food for the anorexic will calm him down and preserve his ego, which is seen as, a danger, at, as in danger at the moment. You really have to think about that it, this is a moment of crisis for the person. It's people who have difficulty using words to communicate, to articulate their sorrow and suffering, their anxieties, and who will feel the need to find refuge in something, refuge in something that the food substance will soothe. It's obviously a diversion, but it becomes the only resort for the person. They don't manage to find alternatives to express and heal their wounds, and they become stuck in this absolutely terrible form of repetition. This is why there, w this is why there will be a repetition of food crisis and very great difficulty for people to get out of them. All this is to explain that these pathologies, which are anorexia, bulimia, and hyperphagia, make a comeback every time we are triggered thinking something is wrong. They are there for a reason. These pathologies have the function of preserving what the person thinks is his, her, his or her psychologic, psychic, psychic survival. So it's very important to know this before rushing to the person and telling him or her, why don't you eat? Why are you eating too much? Why are you making yourself vomit? And so on. To eradicate this evil at all costs, you must consider their link with food. Why does the person do this before thinking of working on the pathology? Because they, quote unquote, may use it as an illusion of their wholeness in that moment. Each story, as I said, is unique. Each story must be taken into account. And that's how we're going to help the person get better and heal. What advice would you give to a friend or a family member if he or she wanted to have an intervention towards a loved one who is affected by any of these pathologies? The advice I can obviously encourage is to talk with someone. It sounds very basic, but it's the basis. Anorexics often refuse therapy because they have a strong denial of their illness. They have a form of hyper control over what happens to them. So they have the impression that they control what happens today. So for serious anorexics, I clearly direct everyone to go and see a psychiatrist who will Hospitalize, hospitalize people if necessary with the most adapted and medicalized care possible for the person. The key is ultimately going to be for the person to see for themselves. You see, this is the key to getting out of the symptom. You have to accept it. It's the recognition of the symptom and accepting that there is a wound behind it and accepting to look a little bit at what is behind this wound. I see this often in the office, yes, quite often, they tend to seek help and, there's, and here the work is to understand why the symptom, 
why it's installed, why there is a symptom, why it's installed and what it speaks of. What is the emotion and the trauma? What life story it will tell and how to try to get better. Following what you're sharing with us and for those who might not be familiar with being in a vulnerable position, does the patient need to have done any prior work on themselves to benefit from hypnosis or how do you handle that first approach, the first contact? Tell us a little more. Yes, well, each patient has his or her own history and each patient is quite resistant. It's quite normal to have resistance. It's even healthy to hold resistance in front of your therapy. So you have to know that in my particular case, I never practice hypnosis in the first session because the first session is called the anamnesis. It is a session that consists of a discussion, which is generally quite long, lasting an hour to an hour and a half or so. I question the patient. I mean, I leave, I leave him to question on his own as much as possible, but I also question why this pathology has developed. As I said, hypnosis is only effective if the anamnesis is successful. In school, actually, we are taught that the hypnosis session is 90% successful after a successful anamnesis. That's kind of the rule. Hypnosis is only effective if you understand what the symptom is about. This is really what I repeat so that people understand that it's all about taking care of yourself in the first place. The therapist is just a mirror in a way. Finally, a third party who will help the person to understand what happens to him, what crosses him and has by itself to take in charge. His hypnosis will be very effective when the patient will arrive at moments where there is an awareness which is strong and thus will arrive a moment where he will understand his interest to change on his own ecology to him does the first session. Afterward, to answer your question, it depends on each person. There are people for whom the first session will be very revealing That's where something strong is going to be put in place. But there are also people for whom, whom a first session will last three or four sessions. That's it. Everyone has their own rhythm and it's important to respect the rhythms and resistance of each person. It's very, very important it's, and it's the role of the therapist. So each cycle, I'll call it a cycle, The approach to treatment is quite active. One seeks to identify a symptom and to seek where the wound is and try to understand. Is the treatment punctual or do you foster long-term relationships with the patients? And then are we talking about more conventional therapy? How does that work? Again, it depends. Some people come for a particular symptom. That's a short therapy, in fact, a therapy that we call solution-oriented therapy which will be very focused on the symptom. So in a way that goes well, there are people who come only for that. And then there are other patients with whom there is slightly different therapeutic relationship, which will start to develop where they will realize different links between certain issues. They will start to talk about other subjects. And so it's true that there are patients that I'm not following since I started out who come to see me regularly for these other types of treatment. There is no right or wrong. I, made each, I make each one according to what he or she wants. 
Great. So a little bit more about you. What's your favorite aspect of your work? The aspect of my work that I prefer is clearly the encounter with others, the richness of the different journeys that's and the encounter with each intelligence, each psyche, each way of seeing the world and each representation of the world. It's a deeply human work and that's what really interests, interests me most. That's what I like best. How long have you been practicing? It's been almost five years now. Five years. And have you been developing your career so far? How? Oh, sorry. Five years. And how have you been developing your career so far? Do you feel like it's evolving in a particular direction? So everyone, I think, would answer the same thing. It's very interesting as a therapist to see how our methods of therapy evolve over time. I think it's like in every profession, like in your profession, that each patient also sends us interesting things. Each person makes us evolve. There are topics that I can't speak of because they are private, but these are jobs where we are constantly evolving. So if some of us are curious and want to consult with you, how can we reach out to you? Where do we find you? My office is in Paris. I work in the third arrondissement next to the Rue de Bretagne for those who know. And I also consult online via Zoom or Skype. I now have quite a few patients who live abroad. All of my contact details are on my website. If you Google Alex George hypnosis, hypnosis, you will easily find me on the internet. Alex, thank you very much. It's been fascinating uh, and a great conversation. One last question that we ask all of our guests. What would you say you can easily digest or not digest at all? It can be both literal or figurative. So what I digest is both literal and figurative. I am very committed to the planet. So everything I digest is what's good for me and what's good for the planet in both senses of the word. And what I don't digest personally I can't digest social inequalities, I can't digest injustices, and I can't digest selfishness. Thank you, Alix. Thank you very much, Leah. Thank you, thank you very much. You chew, you choose. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, give it a like and subscribe for more delicious content to digest.